0: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number Stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Hello, I'm Alva
2: and I'm Armando.
1: Welcome back to Westminster Reimagined, a special series on the New Statesman podcast that looks at how politics works and if it can be done better. In this episode, we'll be joined by former Labour MP Sean Woodward and Professor of Politics at Strathclyde University, John Curtis, to discuss whether we're witnessing the rise of playlist politics as voters and politicians choose to pick and mix different political issues unconstrained by traditional party lines. Now, Amanda, why are we discussing playlist politics? Playlist
2: politics. This this description, this phrase that we've cunningly come up with. To is this describe, your own coinage? I'm now going to say it is then. Lovely. If, if, just in case it makes any money. Um, <laughs> I've, for a while, I've been thinking... Well, first of all, I think votes for the traditional parties have been going down over the over the last few decades. But I think more recently, there's been a the rise in single-issue politics. I think with social media, there's an emphasis on, on kind of identity politics. I think also the huge impact of Brexit, I think, has transformed politics in that parties are now identified as to whether they're... And MPs and politicians are identified as to whether pro or anti-Brexit. And I wonder whether this chimes with you know, the way the young people uh, are used to now anyway, in that, you you know, you can choose any number of pieces of music from any number of albums, Any you know, everything is available to us. And I wonder whether that's also signifying a change in how people think about politics and, and whether rather than identifying with one single party, irrespective of the policies that party has, there's now a tendency to kind of go out and look and identify with individual issues.
1: Yeah, and especially, I suppose, at the moment, the way Labour and the Conservatives they don't necessarily campaign on the traditional, the social campaigning versus the economic positions well, don't always match up. But it'd be interesting to hear from our guests that's what they right. make and of that
2: also too. Single parties now are actually no longer broad churches, but are a kind of a conglomeration of. Disparate groups, you know, you've got Momentum, you've got the European Research Group in Conservative, you know, that so it's the cracks uh, are beginning to be shown within individual parties as well.
1: So we've got a great panel to discuss that today. Um, Professor John Curtis and Sean Woodward will be helping us to get to the bottom of it and even imagine how things could be different So to tell you a bit more about them, John Curtis, you probably know him from election broadcasts. He is a professor of politics at Strathclyde University and a senior research fellow for the National Centre for Social Research. He's particularly well known for his work on elections and has a keen interest in social attitudes and voting behaviours of the British public. He's a president of the British Polling Council, the trade body that represents polling companies and creates the rules under which they operate. And he's part of the team responsible for the broadcasters' exit poll on election night.
2: And we're also joined by Sean Woodward, former Labour MP who defected from the Conservative Party after he was sacked from the front bench in 1999 for supporting the repeal of Section 28, a series of laws limiting how homosexuality could be talked about in schools. He held many roles in the Labour Party, including Northern Ireland Secretary in 2007 under Gordon Brown. And he stood down for Parliament in 2015 and now chairs the LGBT human rights charity Human Dignity Trust. John, am I right? Uh, uh, Support for main political parties has been steadily declining over the decades. Are we getting a more fragmented electorate or a more fickle electorate?
3: Oh, there's an awful lot to unpack. Yes, I know.
2: Well, (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> um, let, me, let, let, me, let me start off with developing your analogy. I think the picture you're trying to paint for us is a world in which it's not just a big case of me wanting to use the shuffle button as I play a particular uh, piece of music. But actually, I'm quite happy to say Alexa play me some music, and I don't care what the music is, let alone the order in which it is portrayed. I think, to be honest, that is an overblown uh, version of where you are, although there's a lot of truth in, in what you say. Now, I mean, in particular, let's just start with an apparent contrast in what you said. You talked a lot about the rise of issue politics. Well, the truth is political science has been arguing about that since about the 1970s. And one of the reasons why, at least originally, that debate took off was not because of the rise of identity politics, but because of the decline of identity politics. That is, the decline in the proportion of people who just say that I am Labour or I am Conservative or whatever, and Mm -hmm. that as a result they are less likely to be loyal to a a particular political party and they're more likely to be influenced by the issues of the day, etc., etc. Now, as you said, actually, we are in a world where at the moment we seem to have rediscovered identity politics, having in some respects worried a great deal about the decline of identity politics. Now there's a great deal of angst about the revival of identity politics. But of course, the identity politics is of a different kind. The identity politics of the 1960s was not just simply tied up with political parties, but it was also tied up with people's sense of identity with the social class. So people said, not just I'm Labour, but they said, I'm working class, and therefore I am Labour, or I am middle class, and therefore I back the Conservatives. Now, those class identities, actually, Mr. Evidence, are still pretty much with us, but the the identification of the parties with social classes, particularly one of the consequences of New Labour, by the way, has very substantially weakened. So that's that's point one. The identity politics we now have is an identity politics that has been stimulated, but arguably not uh, originating in Brexit. It made much more prominent in our politics something that was always there, but was always second fiddle to the left-right social class divide. And that's the division between social conservatives and social liberals, between those who say look, you know, in the end of the day, what social mores people follow is up to them, what language they really speak is up to them, what religion they follow is up to them. And by the way, I love living in London, the most diverse city in the world, versus social conservatives who basically say, look, unless society has a set of morality that, you know, is willing to enforce, we all speak the same language, we all have a share, a common sense of national identity, You don't have the social cohesion that's needed to keep society going. So that's a fundamental debate. It's always been there. Brexit stimulated that. But we're not talking about people who, know, uh, will, will take a stance on one issue which is unrelated to that on another. And that's one of the reasons, for example, why the government in the follow up to Brexit in trying still to stimulate that vote, talks about the woke versus anti-woke agenda, because again, it taps into that social conservative social dimension. But then the other thing, which then of course is true, is that the social base of social conservatism versus social liberalism is different from the social base of left versus right, which was at least at one time social class. It is A, age, younger people are much more social liberal than older people and essentially vote to remain, and B, it's education. Education has now become a significant divide in our society. University graduates tend to be liberal. Those who've had less in the way of education uh, opportunities are less so. So Brexit is sort
2: of not so much the cause, but maybe a catalyst for the the sort of transformation that we've seen today. Sean, you've been at the forefront. You've seen inside both main parties close up. Do you detect any kind of change now? I mean, the move you made from Conservative to Labour at the time, was, was, was a very rare move. Do you sort of feel that that kind of shift from one party to another is much more commonplace now?
4: I don't think it's more commonplace. I mean, I, I, I think there's a degree of fluidity. To, to go to the central heart of this, you know, has tribalism ended in politics? Yes, I think it's pretty much gone. Uh, it's not completely over. But the days when, as it were, you could just expect St. Helens, for example, to vote Labour and Whitney just to vote Conservative uh, is changing, but it's not over because I would be very surprised at the next general election if St. Helens, North or South, doesn't return Labour MPs. And I'd be very surprised if Whitney, both of those seats I've represented, of course, doesn't return a Conservative MP. Is it just about tribalism? No, I don't think it is. And, And I think some very interesting things are also happening, but again, context And whatever we might say, the fact of the matter is that politics in the 20th century saw the decline in Britain of the Liberal Party. It saw the ascension of the Labour Party, which of course was a movement. And throughout most of the 20th century, it was obviously uh, the Labour Party or the Tories in government, except for a brief period of national unity. And that's how the 21st century has started too. And if we look at the United States, you know, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party have done the same thing. There is no Trump party, although there's an interesting question about whether Trumpism may be taking over the Republican party in a way that the Tea Party tried to under Gingrich and so on. But so what I think we get to here is undoubtedly there is change going on. And I think in the UK, one of the most significant dimensions to understand that change has been the collapse of the class system. That doesn't mean the class system is over. It doesn't mean, say, there aren't still mm-hmm. working class people. The Labour Party has to come to terms with the fact that it's been incredibly successful on issues like health service and education and so on. Britain has been transformed on the Labour Party's arguments. But with that, the working class that once tribally put Labour into office has gone. And it's gone for one very good reason. The Labour Party has forced an agenda that the Tories have also adopted, which has actually meant that working class people, by and large, have become middle class people. Now, there are 100 shades of middle class and there are still working class people and there's still an underclass. And who the hell represents the underclass is a very good Mm. question.
2: That's That's a question that's been coming up several times in our conversations, actually.
4: And I think it's very interesting to see what's happening inside the Labour Party, because it seems to me to be in a schizophrenic place of, on the one hand, trying to cling to its past and identity politics about working class people wearing caps. But the problem is, of course, there aren't enough of those people that if you put them all together in the room, genuine working class people, you probably could only elect 10 MPs. Most people are today middle class. And to put this finally in the context of Brexit, Look, Brexit came along, and what Brexit was was a tidal wave. The interesting thing was that actually there is not now a Brexit party dominating our politics in Britain. So issues matter, climate change matters, but it hasn't meant that the Green Party, for example, has ended up being the dominant party or the second dominant party in Britain. So I think parties are alive and well, but I don't think they're alive and well in the tradition we've seen because of tribalism,
2: is it that the main parties are both going through strangely existential crisis as to what they stand for, and that the Conservatives have this pull between, you know, e- economic conservatism but social liberalism, and and now Labour under Starmer ha- is juggling with this, trying trying to be kind of economically conservative.
4: Yeah, well, I mean, look, the Conservative Party is, is it, look, it, it is what it is. It, it has a fundamental philosophy, which is that I'll do things for myself, and if I have to, I'll do them with other people as well. So, get off my back, get the state off my back, and don't ask me to pay any tax. Um, you know, that's been something which has been there since time began, almost, and and there will always be a place for that. Get off my back, let me do it myself. What the Labour Party is in need of doing, you know, it, it's got to come to terms with its success, and the success is that its agenda as a movement of the 1920s, it can tickle the boxes. What is the Labour Party in the 21st century? And I think if it gets its head around the fact that it should be a values-based party, and if you share these values, whether you're incredibly rich or you're in the underclass, or if you're a hundred shades of the middle class, you can be Labour. That's why I felt comfortable in Tony Blair and Gordon Brown's Labour because they basically had said you no longer need to choose between this crazy vote for the Conservative Party if you believe in economics, vote for the Labour Party if you believe in the state and the National Health Service. It kind of said, look, you can have both. You just may not get them quite as quickly. And I think if Keir can pick up that narrative and understand that he should go out there as a values-based politician, which I think he's trying to do, and I think... He's beginning to be heard on this, but it just needs to be sharper because you need to be able to knock on that door or communicate with people with Twitter or social media or whatever it may be at an election and in a sentence say, what is it we're for? And that's what we've got to get to grips with.
1: Sean, that's so interesting. You're talking about the approach to values that made you feel particularly comfortable in the new Labour government. Just wondering then you kind of hinted at it. Does that mean you feel a little bit less comfortable with Keir Starmer's Labour and the way he's pitching Labour at the moment?
4: No, I, I, I'm, I want the Labour Party to win the next general election because I really genuinely think that Britain will be better under Labour. I, I, I think, you know, we, we need a national health service, healthcare delivered free at the point of delivery. And we need a party that really believes in it, not that says the words, but then doesn't actually provide the resources to do it. We need a party that believes that you have to put money into kids' education in the state system because there has to be levels of education from zero to when you leave university or college or whatever else it is, you choose to be encouraged to do in higher and further education. And I chair Lambda, which is an interesting group outside of the normal university bodies, but you know we train the finest actors in the world at that, but we have no... Public money of any significant source to help get us through, and we need it. So I want to see a party running the country that believes in those things and believes in them as a point of principle, and will actually dedicate an economic and financial system to serve them. So I think Keir believes that, but I think we need to sharpen that narrative and stop chasing things from the past. I think we need to look to the future, and we need to give people a a, a playbook. Rather than a playlist, but nonetheless, you can have a playlist too. But I think it needs to be recognizing that people are intelligent. You know, they they are prepared to listen to actually what a party will give them. And what the Labour Party needs to give them is a prospectus that actually makes people feel valued, heard, and also that they will actually provide something which people most want, which is pretty basic. You know, I want a home, I want education, I want healthcare when I get sick, I want to know that if there's a COVID crisis, my doctors and nurses will have PPE equipment and that I might get a vaccine. And I also want to make sure that my mum and dad or my elderly relatives, or even me when I get old, won't actually be frightened of being old because we'll be abandoned. Now, I think that agenda is alive and good, and we've just got to find policies that speak to it. And I don't think, as it were, just a rag bag, if I may call that, as a playlist of your favourites, is quite...
3: Hi, Anoush here.
0: We've got a special offer for Westminster Reimagined listeners. You can subscribe to The New Statesman for just a pound a week for 12 weeks. Just go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. And you can check out all our podcasts, including audio long reads and world review at newstatesman.com forward slash podcasts. We'll be right back.
5: From the New Statesman comes a new podcast. Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud.
0: Songs are like tattoos, Mitchell said on Blue. Having one written about you is immortality and fiction rolled into one.
5: Featuring writing from our authors including Kate Mossman on Joni Mitchell's former muse and lover. Jeremy Cliff on his journey through France before this year's presidential election. And Sophie McBain the refugee crisis.
1: Don't die, he kept shouting. He didn't answer when Marwa screamed back, Who is dying?
5: Ease into the weekend with our Audio Long Reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga
1: I noticed when, Armando, you were saying that maybe both parties are in a bit of a schizophrenic place at the moment. John, you were nodding vigorously. Um, So I'm wondering if you could just maybe outline your perspective on that kind of identity crisis within the Tory party.
3: Well, I think it's like Conservative Party. The question is to what extent has the party caught up with the quite substantial change in the kind of people who've been voting for it certainly in 2017 and 2019. We do now need to remember that in 2019, rather more working-class voters. And Sean's right, that, that group is much smaller than once was, but it does still exist. Working-class voters were more likely to vote for the Conservatives than they were for Labour. They've got to catch up with the fact that, of course, while for some of those in the Leave movement at elite level, it was about deregulation and about creating Singapore upon Thames, most of the people who were voting leave were actually, to some degree, cocking a snooker to free market capitalism and were actually looking for protectionism and protection, of course, from ways of immigration, but also arguably also protection from the ravages of capitalism that have been evident since the uh, financial crash. Now, the prime minister seems to be relatively comfortable with his new electorate and certainly seems to be quite willing to continue to try to press the buttons uh, that might manage to keep that electoral coalition together. The question, however, is whether or not those around him are of the same mind. And you can certainly see at the moment, now we've got into the post-COVID phase, we can see certainly seemingly a tension between the Prime Minister and the Chancellor. The Prime Minister, as it were, still being the champion of Leave and still demonstrating those instincts, but a chancellor who seems to be much more of an economic and fiscal conservative, much more Thatcherite. And the interesting question is whether not, therefore, actually whether Tory MPs, in wanting to go seemingly for a relatively smaller state, are still, as a result, going to be able to keep their hands on that Leave electorate, some of which, at least, is certainly not on the right uh, on, uh, on economic issues. So, hmm. um, yes, so, uh, I mean, I think, you know, the Labour Party's definitely had an existential crisis. So le- the Labour Party is now the party of middle class social liberal graduates. That's where it's successful. Many of them, of course, first generation middle class. But the Labour Party is deeply, deeply uncomfortable with that electorate. And although Sean has laid out a vision, I, to be honest, Sean, I think your vision is still very much one to say Labour Party is in favour of a bigger state than the Conservatives. And to that extent, at least, it's actually going back to a fairly traditional politics. Uh, Labour Party isn't willing to say, for example... Even that perhaps, um, you know, we should be rethinking the uh, trade and cooperation agreement, let alone uh, rejoining Brexit, even though it's quite clear the vast bulk of its membership and the majority of people who vote for it are certainly very much in, in that position. So Labour definitely have been going through an existential crisis. They want to reconnect with their working class electorate. They're focusing, of course, on the working class electorate in uh, the north of England, in the Midlands, as they perceive it. And so doing, of course, somewhat ignoring the fact that north of the border, which we've not talked about, politics has definitely fragmented, and identity certainly matters in the wake of which, Labour's electoral base amongst both middle class and working class voters has been pretty much destroyed. Um, uh, But, of course, the the very tactics that are designed to try to appeal to leave voters uh, in the so-called Red Wall seats are probably the opposite tactics that are required to reconnect with the electorate in Scotland. So Labour very definitely caught in both, as it were, an existential bind between what it is and what it would like to be, and also in terms of the, uh, the strategic choices that it faces. But the Conservatives also, arguably at elite level have not fully cottoned onto the character of the electorate that brought them that victory in 2019. It's a
2: slight mirror of what's going on in America, isn't it? The Democrats are now the the party of the liberal middle class educated and the republicans are kind of driven by the personality of an individual at the moment
3: well it's more than that i mean the the truth is even before trump the united states you know when i was an undergraduate in the 1970s you know you wrote that in the united kingdom had a very strong social cleavage based on social class and and in america actually It was playlist politics that, you know, uh, the the, the divisions between the parties weren't that sharp. Politicians often cooperated with with each other across party lines, etc., etc. Well, that's certainly not true of the States because essentially in the States, religion's become a fundamental division uh, in its politics, its identity politics, which has been played out very similarly to here, whereby the party that was once as it were, the party of, uh, of more working class voters. Democrats has now become the party of social liberals. And the Republicans, which used to be the party of conservatives, is economic conservatives, is now the party of social conservatives. It's a very, very similar division. Of course, the, the interesting thing about both the UK and the USA is the way in which a different cleavage has still become articulated through our traditional two-party system. Look across the English Channel, and a number of countries have seen fundamental changes in the character of their party systems in the wake of the rise of populism on the one hand, uh, 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 et cetera, et cetera. We, We thought for a while in 2019 when the Brexit party came first in the European election and the Liberal Democrats came second, that maybe the same thing was going to happen here. The extraordinary resilience of our two large parties has been the way in which they did in the end encapsulate the Brexit divide even though actually they weren't the obvious, most obvious vehicles for voters. But I, I, best- wonder,
2: I wonder whether that's uh, also a factor of the fact that we have an electoral system, especially in yeah. general elections, that favours large parties and discriminates against smaller yeah, parties. Yeah, though,
3: though, though that electoral system wo- has continued to work in England and Wales, of course it, doesn't, it didn't work in Scotland in the end. Uh, first Past the Post has helped to destroy the, the, the old two-party system in Scotland because once the SNP became dominant... They, they, they came walkers anyway. And I think and the other thing one should say, you know, the other thing that's happened to British politics uh, during the course of the last 50 years is that, frankly, it's died. We don't have British politics anymore. Northern Ireland left that's the UK right. party yes. system at around 1970. Scotland left it in 2015. All we have now is English and Welsh politics. We have Scottish politics and we have Northern Irish politics. We are no longer a single country politically anymore.
2: And also, I would like to hear from both of you just thoughts on, I mentioned the generational thing. I mean, the first time and second time voters now, again, maybe this is very unscientific, but my feeling is that they are a little bit more prone to be drawn towards some of the smaller parties or single-issue parties. What's what's your perception in terms of how loyal the younger generation are to the main parties?
3: You may remember back in the late nineteen sixty, Peter Poulter, the then Glaston Professor of Government at Oxford, came up with this famous aphorism, class is the basis of British politics, all else is embellishment in detail. Well, actually now, delete social class, insert age. Yes. Age is now by far and away the biggest demographic division in our politics. As we already said, it was associated with uh, how people vote in the referendum. It's also very, very strongly associated with... With how people vote it was already becoming apparent in 2015 and by 2019 you know you're talking the enormous difference and that of course does raise a fundamental question about the future of the conservative party which is that unless in the not too distant future it starts to persuade younger people to vote for it it is literally going to die on its feet and that while things at the moment look extremely difficult for the labor party go ahead 20 years and, frankly, uh, things look much better. Now, of course, it has to be said what's also true, the same is true of attitudes towards the union north of the border. The relationship between age and people's attitudes towards the constitutional question has also sharpened in recent years. And again, unless unionists can persuade middle-aged voters, at least, that actually Scotland should remain inside the union, then gradually support for Scotland being part of the United Kingdom is going to disappear too. So there are some pretty fundamental demographic challenges potentially coming down the track and that at some point the Conservative Party in particular is going to have to work out a way of connecting with younger voters or it's going to find itself in a very difficult position.
1: So there's a ticking time bomb there potentially for the Conservative Party. We're, we're nearly out of time but I'd really like to ask both of you while we're talking about the, the single issues dominating politics what you make briefly of both parties approaches to what quote unquote, the culture wars. John, I'll come to Sean first, but maybe John, how much do these issues really motivate voters? But first, Sean, how do you think the Conservatives are using these issues? And and same with Labour, do you think that this is actually a dividing line for voters?
4: It's really very hard to take that apart, I think. And, and, and I mean, for me, you know, the The big issue that's taking place here is the collapse of tribalism. And the collapse of tribalism has gone hand in hand with the transformation of our class system. And that, in one sense, has put playlist issues up there. But I think to pick up from what John said earlier, the education of most people in Britain across the 20th century, that transformation that took place has given rise to why younger people now feel listen to me that also means they want to be heard not being heard gives rise to discontent and i think what's interesting here is is therefore the role that social media is playing and i think the big issue here and whether we're talking about cultural issues or whatever and which is going to give rise to probably Playlist politics of a more significant kind in the next decade or two is are you listening to the things that trouble me? And it's not that there's a hundred issues really troubling people, they come down to a number of probably quite core issues. But I think green issues, uh, for want of a better term, are going to be much, much, much more important in the in the next decade. And they're going to be much more important, for example, because whilst people have been talking about energy and renewable energy for a period of time, what's forcing the energy issue back onto the table now is the cost of living crisis caused by energy prices. And suddenly the interest in energy and who's actually got something sensible to say on energy and where energy is going to come from and how we're going to produce energy is suddenly going to bring together a marrying of issues that have been on people's respective playlists. And then what becomes really interesting is who gets behind it with a set of values, probably underpinned by an ideology, that actually makes sense of it for people, what you do. And that goes back to why you get sea change elections. You got one in 1979 because Mrs. Thatcher gave the country a programme for what you need to do. You got one in 1997 because Blair came in with, what you need to do. I think to pretty much large extent, we haven't actually had a sea change election, although we've had a sort of significant outcome in terms of shift of who's in Downing Street and who's not. I don't think since 1979 and 1997, we've had one. I think there's going to be one.
3: I think the short answer to the question you posed to me is that basically the Conservative Party, or at least Boris Johnson, would like to fight the next election on cultural issues, by which I mean essentially still talking about immigration and, above all, still talking about the sovereignty that Brexit is meant to have delivered. Trans rights is not an issue that most electorate engage with, but Black Lives Matter can certainly to some degree tap into the more ethnocentric views behind some of those who are concerned about immigration. Although the immigration debate is, in truth, a bit more complicated, the Conservatives realize. People don't necessarily want to reduce immigration. They want to see it controlled, and they want it controlled for the country's interests. And I think actually the government's uh, been somewhat slow in realising. Certainly over Ukraine refugees, that the public would be uh, have a have a degree of uh, substantial degree of sympathy for them, and that in things like uh, a shortage of liar drivers, shortage of arbitral workers, the views of voters is well, if we need them then we should let them in. The point is of having control is to make sure we get the people we need, not necessarily just to put up barriers full stop. So the government needs to be a bit more adept about immigration, but it's still an issue that it will want to talk about along with sovereignty. Those are the two issues about which I think the Labour Party does not wish to talk. Labour Party wants politics to go back to an argument between, essentially between, if not left and right, certainly between big state and small state. I think Sean has just articulated that distinction very, very clearly. I think the interesting thing, however, about climate change is that I suspect climate change will actually probably feed into that more traditional uh, left-right, big state, small state narrative. Because at the end of the day, although a lot of the focus about climate change is about what we as individuals can do, in the end, the big decisions are going to be made by governments. And the question is, to what extent... Are we willing to see things taxed in order to stop us from doing them? To what extent are we willing to see uh, the state regulate industry more in order to stop them uh, from doing things that harm the climate? And also, by the way, and above all, what is our attitude towards nuclear power, which is potentially a heavily divisive issue, but it's one way of getting out of climate change that conservative voters are rather keen on. So actually, on the one hand, yes, Brexit uh, and the continuing argument about Brexit keeps the culture war alive, it may find itself in competition with, with climate change, which I think actually might take us back to rather more traditional uh, a territory, albeit arguing over a, a, rather new, uh, where, a, new, a rather new debate about how we should be running our economy.
4: I mean, to a point, John, I, mean, I, I just see that you know, the next election, which is after all only a couple of years away at the most, and, and, and the Tories most likely would want to call it earlier than that, The cost of living is going to be as it was in the 1970s with rampantly higher inflation is going to probably be the issue at the next election. We might be talking about immigration, we might be talking about refugees, but the truth is whoever's got the financial prospectus to offer hardworking families who are in absolute crisis, how do I pay my bills? That's going to, I think, trump everything at the next election and but at the same time in order to deal with that you're going to have to have a sensible energy policy because you can't just bring down the cost of living unless you've got a coherent way of providing people with energy at prices they can afford to pay and i think you know what's interesting here is is that the next election could just be one in which again if the labor party gets its act together and has a financial offering on these things It would be extraordinary, wouldn't it? But it's not inconceivable that the Labour Party could look like the financial party to put the country right.
3: I think the $64,000 question, Sean, is will either of our our two big parties be able to come up with a a programme to deal with the cost of living crisis in which uh, uh, many electors will have a great deal of confidence? It's arguably an issue where perhaps we're discovering the relative weakness of even supposedly sovereign governments in a still heavily globalised world.
2: Yes. Well, I mean, as with all our discussions, we're barely scratching the surface by the time we've run out of time. Lots to chew on there. Thank you very much. That's been an extremely stimulating and absorbing discussion about where we are at the moment. Thanks very much.
1: Thank you both so amanda that was really interesting there was so much there though. a lot to unpack isn't it yeah. it's
2: um hey it's complicated isn't it politics <laughs> uh, interesting i mean s- several points one is i think i think in the end both agreed that tribalism as we perceived it you know class tribalism has changed into something else maybe maybe tri- maybe tribalism hasn't gone but we've transformed into smaller and smaller large number of smaller tribes
1: Well I think what I find really interesting was, I mean this sort of intersects with the idea of playlist politics Mm. but not perfectly, but this idea that actually whether you are someone with a long and illustrious political career or a political polling expert like John Curtis you ultimately don't really know what issues the next election will be Mm. fought over, Mm. that was kind of what they were politely disagreeing about there Mm. and I think that's kind of what makes politics so interesting that as well as this idea that voters are more volatile and they're picking yes, individual and, and issues. And also, therefore, the, yeah. the,
2: the main parties actually don't quite know which, yeah. what to lead with.
1: Yeah, like, is it immigration? Will it be the cost of living crisis? What's going to dominate? Can you refight a cultural divide mm. over Brexit? Do you, will it be a shift to the cost of living crisis? I think that's fascinating. And just to
2: tie into the whole idea of volatility, I mean, it, it struck me, you know, we do have a government here with a majority of 80. Now, normally that would be considered solid, not a so problem, there's not going to be any trouble. But really, for the last two years, there's been nothing but, you know, carping from the back benches. the Prime Minister's under threat, question mark over positions and so on. It does indicate that within parties, that sense of loyalty to the leadership is beginning to disappear as well.
1: Oh, for sure. I think that's a good point. Yeah, that they, maybe MPs themselves, are playlist politicians a little bit more.
2: There is this big space of ungoverned disorder
0: where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't
5: know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack.
2: And I'm Alex Hall Hall. And
5: we're the hosts of Disorder,
2: a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting
5: the dots using our own experiences, as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out. Why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How
0: did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online.
5: What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search Disorder wherever you get your
1: podcasts.
2: Oh, they're all starting their own mini party within yeah. a party. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, that's all for now and all from me. But Anush will be back next week with you, Armando, for the final episode in the series.
2: That's right. Anoush and I will be discussing whether politics has become a game. And we'll be discussing that with playwright and screenwriter James Graham and professor of politics Chris Hanretti.
1: I can't wait to hear it. Thank you for listening and goodbye. You've been listening to Westminster Reimagined, a special series on the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, and our special guest host, Armando Iannucci. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and don't forget to subscribe. You can watch video from this podcast on the New Statesman's YouTube channel and on the New Statesman website. This episode was produced by Adrian Bradley and Mae Robson, and our executive producer is Chris Stone.